Hi, everybody. Cheryl Ackeson here. Welcome to another edition of the Cheryl Ackeson podcast on justthenews.com. I hope you'll check out all the Just the News podcasts. You can go to justthenews.com and see the list of them on the homepage. Consider ordering my new bestseller, Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love, Censorship, and Hate Journalism. It's a nonpartisan look at the devolution of news and the control of information online and on social media. And it also includes a dissection of the problems at CNN, where I once worked, and the New York Times. Today in this podcast, we'll look at how the news would cover the post-election mess if it were covered in a neutral and objective fashion. And I'll dig into the genesis of big tech censorship and the dangerous place it may be headed now. It's one of the odder things I've observed when it comes to journalism. The way that this post-election controversy after the 2020 election has been covered or perhaps not been covered by many who work in the news media. It was strange to see, after all the warnings of what could go wrong in 2020, whether it's the Chinese or the Russians interfering or domestic bad actors as they tried to do in 2016. It's amazing that after we were warned of all of this, that suddenly when 2020 came, a couple of days after the election, many in the media who certainly didn't investigate any of it firsthand were declaring that it was over, there was no fraud. Of course, that narrative changed to, well, there's no evidence of widespread fraud. And as the claims continued to come in, and it appeared to be widespread, and there was some pretty good evidence, at least in terms of credible figures giving sworn testimony and some videos and so on, then the narrative became, well, there's no evidence of systemic fraud. So the goalpost keeps changing. And again, reporters, journalists, and even analysts who I'm quite sure haven't read the pleadings or watched the court procedures or listened to the state legislative hearings or declaring with no information of their own that this is all moot and debunked and there's nothing to see. And I was thinking, as I often do, about the substitution game, which I wrote about in my last book, The Smear, and talk about again in my new book, Slanted. And I was thinking that if you look back at 2016 and if Donald Trump had been losing and Hillary Clinton had appeared to be winning on election night by a lot, only to have Donald Trump come into the lead within the next couple of days amid a lot of allegations that Democrats weren't allowed to observe and that there was an unprecedented number of mail-in ballots and suspicious or strange trends and a lot of allegations and videos and so on, absolutely the media would have covered this differently. And I'm quite sure if the tables were turned in 2020, and if it were Joe Biden trying to prove or show that something inappropriate had happened, the media would be covering it heavily and could change the whole course of how things appear to be in terms of what the public's view is. What do I mean by that? Well, the media has decided almost in concert not to give oxygen to Donald Trump and his supporters' claims that something is amiss that he actually, as he claims, won the election and it was stolen from him. There was a decision we know at news organizations, not just one of them, to 
not give, not only not give credence to it, but not give time to it. So not only do they say it's debunked and disproven and without merit, they don't even talk about it much. And they certainly are not covering news events surrounding all of this in a neutral or objective way. And if they were, I'm quite sure that there would be a lot more information, not just on the cable channels, but even on the non-cable channels and on publications, news publications on the internet. There'd be a lot of coverage of these state legislative hearings being held by Republican Party leaders where there's quite a bit of evidence being presented. And you can tell some of it is the same from state to state as if there are trends in whether it's observers who said that they were blocked from actually seeing what was going on, from ballots that they say came in, absentee ballots not folded that appeared pristine, which isn't possible if they were mailed in. They'd have to be folded to go in the envelopes, to all kinds of tales such as the privacy envelopes, the outer envelopes of absentee ballots being improperly shredded when they're supposed to be saved so that later, if necessary, People can see if they really were mailed and where they came from, all kinds of alleged improprieties. And if the press were covering these hearings and allegations live, or even fairly summarizing them in news form, it could give an entirely different impression of what's actually happening and the status of the evidence that's out there. So I decided to write a story in the past couple of days just as if it were a regular news story like we used to do. Instead of telling people what they have to think, instead of giving my uninformed opinion, as many reporters are, and saying there's nothing to a particular claim when they haven't investigated it for themselves, they have no way to know, other than they've just chosen to believe one side over the other. Instead of doing that, what would it look like if this were covered fairly and neutrally? Well, what I did was take the allegations in a number of different states and kind of organized them and wrote a news story about them and didn't try to prove or debunk them because I'm not on the ground. This isn't an investigative story, but simply reporting and factually recounting what the claims are. Now, you'll notice if you've seen a lot of stories in the media about this, the press will tend to take the side making an allegation and immediately say it's without evidence or debunked, but then take the word of whoever's either accused or responsible for the elections, who would be the ones that maybe did something wrong, either in terms of mismanagement or even fraud, and automatically take the word of whoever that is as if it's a fact, as if that the mere word of that person has somehow effectively debunked or disproven the allegation when nothing of the sort has happened but that's how it's treated. So what would a news article look like if you didn't treat it that way? If you let people hear, what are the allegations? And you're not saying you're drawing a conclusion or telling them what conclusion to draw. People can think for themselves, do additional research. They've certainly heard every counterpoint to this already. They've heard from most every news organization and everywhere on social media and almost every information source that there's nothing to any of this. But the truth is, if they wanted to hear the other side, if they wanted to get informed, it's pretty hard to do. With all the censorship, they're making sure that links don't even circulate on Twitter. I tried to circulate a court document. It wouldn't share on Twitter. 
This is a publicly filed court document. I have had to look very hard to find hearings. And when I find a state legislative hearing where evidence was presented or witnesses gave testimony, it's very hard to find any news articles that summarized it other than articles just saying it was all debunked partisan testimony that was given, which is not true. I mean, I wouldn't go by the news articles anyway. I often have found I have to listen to the source material myself because more often than not, when I do listen to the source material, my takeaway is almost always different than the summary I heard or it's out of context when I've heard it presented by other people. So I do like to look for articles to see what's been written. I'm going to tell you there haven't been many written in a fair sense about any of this, but I don't even take that word for it when it happens because it's best to go to the source. So I've tried to spend time watching these legislative hearings, listening to testimony. I've even watched some of the court proceedings, and it's been quite interesting. So how would I write a news article that isn't telling you what you have to think and making conclusions about things I can't possibly know? Well, I centered the article that I wrote that I published at CherylAckison.com. I centered it on the lawsuit filed on behalf of President Trump in Georgia. And I came across this suit, but I had not seen anybody report on it yet. And it alleged in general that there were, let's go down the tally, illegal votes, it said, for more than 395 people who voted twice, 2,423 people who were not registered, up to 2,560 felons, 2,664 who received absentee ballots outside the deadline, 4,926 people who registered in another state after Georgia, 8,718 dead people, and 66,247 underage residents. That's far more than the difference between the Trump and Biden votes. So all of these could prove to be significant, even if only a fairly small fraction of those numbers turn out to be fraudulent or improper. And so, as I wrote in this article, a little more than four weeks after the contested 2020 presidential election, as votes are officially certified in crucial states, a cascade of claims and evidence has emerged alleging widespread misconduct and fraud impacting millions of votes. In Michigan, Witnesses say they watched election workers rescan ballots for Joe Biden up to 10 times each. In Georgia, new surveillance video presented at a hearing purports to show election workers dismissing observers, then pulling out large stashes of ballots they counted without the observers present, although the other side disputes it. Multiple postal employees and election workers have testified they were instructed to illegally backdate ineligible mail-in ballots. In several states, observers say they were blocked while votes were counted illegally, signatures weren't properly matched, voter ID laws were circumvented, and voter turnout exceeded the number of voters registered. And analysts have identified what they call statistical anomalies, massive vote dumps in the middle of the night that exceeded machine capacity and flipped the 2020 presidential contest. In that race, as we all know, President Trump, a Republican, appear to be heading toward a landslide victory on election night, only to have former Vice President Joe Biden, the Democrat, flip the script as giant batches of absentee and mail-in votes were counted 
in the days following the election amid cries of irregularities. Now, again, I'm writing this article and reporting it just as a straight news article where I'm not telling you what to think or claiming to know things that we can't possibly know. I'll continue. The claims are contained in hundreds of sworn declarations, affidavits, videos, statements, witness accounts, arrests, and expert analyses from election observers, Republicans, Democrats, attorneys, and statistics specialists across nearly a dozen states. There are complaints ranging from process errors, incompetence, differences over election laws, and accidental errors to outright fraud. It's impossible to know at this stage how many of the claims can be verified and, if proven, how consequential they could be in the big picture. And it is increasingly clear how difficult it is to nail down any evidence in details in the time frame required to seriously challenge the results of the 2020 presidential election. On the Trump side, evidence has been gathered on a drastically truncated timeline and without the benefit of the normal evidentiary tools afforded when criminal fraud is suspected. Typically, in a voter fraud investigation, law enforcement builds a case and collects proof at no cost to the alleged victim over a period of months, if not years, under a discovery process that uses subpoenas to compel production of documents, testimony, and other evidence. But in the dispute over the 2020 election results, no law enforcement body has publicly stepped in, so Trump and his supporters have been left on their own to pursue civil lawsuits in multiple states. They have acted quickly to meet tight deadlines while struggling with a general lack of access to compelled testimony and forensic evidence, such as voting machines and video recordings. And some courts have already indicated that to consider throwing out large numbers of votes or overturning an election, they expect monumental and overwhelming evidence on the front end, even if in practical terms it is out of reach. The Trump campaign filed four lawsuits prior to the filing in Georgia. Dozens more cases have been brought by voting rights advocates and Trump supporters. There have been some sporadic victories in court for Trump's side, such as a federal judge that temporarily ordered voting machines in Georgia not be reset or erased, but so far most court decisions have fallen on the side of Biden and the accused election officials, who argue that the claims of mischief or fraud lack specific evidence or fall short of what is needed to prevail. Still, the court challenges and a series of election fraud hearings, hastily convened by Republican-led state legislatures, have provided a forum for specific claims, evidence, and witness accounts. Taken together, they form a pattern of alleged widespread disorganization and purposeful fraud. So that's my take. And if you would like to read about it, because then I break it down state by state, some of the most significant claims going from Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, Wisconsin, and then I talk about some of the claims made about Dominion voting systems, that's at CherylAckison.com. And it's titled, Amid a New Lawsuit Filed in Georgia by President Trump, Allegations of Widespread Irregularities and Fraud Are Building. An interesting thing I might add, worth mentioning at this point, is the strange things that Google is doing to some of the stories at CherylAckison.com. This has been going on for maybe eight or nine months, where some of my more popular articles, such as this one, get flagged by the program or the project that Google uses, if you let them, 
to rotate ads on your website. That, for me, helps defray a tiny bit of the cost of managing the website. And they can kind of demonetize you or punish you if certain things happen or if they flag you for certain things. And what they've been doing is they will take some of these more popular articles, like the one that I've described to you, that are getting a lot of clicks and attention, and they make them basically invisible. And my web helper... My technician can't quite figure out how this happens, but they flag a page, they give it a 404 error as if it doesn't exist, they point it to the wrong place, and then they say they restrict demand to your website. And when you look, they've somehow changed what's in the title bar of that page. It's not what's supposed to be there. Maybe there's an extra character or an extra few words, it somehow messes everything up. So after I wrote this article and it got widely circulated, the one that I'm talking about, it kind of disappeared from my website. I have reloaded it onto the home page. Hopefully you can find it at CherylAxon.com. Again, it's titled Amid a New Lawsuit Filed in Georgia by President Trump, Allegations of Widespread Irregularities and Fraud Are Building. This big tech censorship that we keep talking about, this is really serious stuff as I think you already know, not just the open things that they're doing with censoring accounts and labeling things, YouTube recently announcing they're not even going to let people talk about election fraud because they've determined that these viewpoints and this evidence, if there is any, or these facts should not cross your ears because they've made up their mind for you that there's nothing to it and you shouldn't hear about it. This is very serious stuff. We'll be back with more of our discussion right after a short break. We're back. And I have been asked in a couple of different ways, what really is the harm of what I call this censorship by not just the news, but as we say, big tech companies, YouTube and Twitter and Facebook and Google I've had people actually say, you know, a lot of bad stuff and untrue stuff is out there and it shouldn't be amplified and circulated and retweeted. So really what's the harm with them trying to stop that and make sure that only accurate information gets passed around and not this fake news? And when I get asked that, I almost don't know where to begin because it's so obvious to me what the harm is of all of this, but maybe I've been thinking about it for a long time. Maybe it helps or would help for all of us to reread or read, if we haven't already, George Orwell's 1984. Do students even have to read that anymore in high school or college? Because that's kind of where we are now. I mean, his dystopian society, meaning George Orwell's, that he profiled in 1984, which was written decades earlier about how he saw the future, this dystopian future with Big Brother meaning the political party or the unnamed government, dictating what people had to think, rewriting history in real time to match up what the powerful interests wanted it to say. Does that sound familiar? It didn't envision the internet specifically, but it's very much like what we're seeing now. The language that had to be used, the double think, as it was called, that I see reporters doing on a daily basis here, contradicting themselves as they report something 
but seeming unbothered by the contradictions or perhaps able to convince themselves that both things are somehow true at the same time. And let's talk about the slippery slope. I can't remember when I first heard that term, but never did it apply any better than it does now when you talk about inviting sensors or inviting third parties between you and the information that's supposed to belong to us or be accessible to us in the kind of democratic republic that we have here, to invite curators and censors between us and say that it's okay or it could be a good thing without understanding that powerful corporate and political interests always figure out how to co-opt these things. They're always going to figure out how to co-opt the information source or the political figures, or as we've seen, the media. And I think I've made a pretty good case in my series of books, including the most recent one, Slanted, that political and corporate interests in the first decade and a half of this century did a very good job at, as I say, infiltrating news organizations to make sure that what we report and what we talk about is on point with the narratives that they want us to talk about. We use the language that they suggest, but they do it, they suggest it in clever ways where we think it's our own idea in the news, this propaganda that they feed to us through third parties, nonprofits, LLCs, PR firms, crisis management firms, global law firms, you name it, political action committees. They've figured out how to get us on point with what they want us to talk about. And I've said this before that even if you think you're watching different sides of the story, maybe you watch Fox News and you watch CNN, you watch a little MSNBC, watch a little CBS, because you say, well, I want to get all sides of an issue. Or let's say you're watching one channel and they're presenting a debate, a two-sided discussion, and you think, well, there, I'm not being led down the path. I'm not listening to propaganda on one side. But I have to tell you, you're still being subjected to the narrative because they're controlling the topics that are talked about on the news, even if they're presented in two-sided fashions or they're made to look like they're being presented in a two-sided fashion. They're still talking about the subjects that these political and corporate interests want us to be thinking about and excluding, by the way, important news topics that they don't want us talking and thinking about. And so when you say, or when we say, sure, come in and tell us what we should be seeing and not seeing, curate my information online, tell me which scientific studies are good and which one have been debunked, you're putting your faith in the hands of third parties who may be controlled by other parties, kind of laundering their interests and their influence and making it look like they're doing something good. I mean, I look at Snopes. I think Snopes probably started out as a well-meaning effort to debunk myths online. But if you've dug a little beneath the surface, you've seen that Snopes, like practically every other information source or fact-checking source or encyclopedia out there, Snopes has been controlled and taken over by political and corporate interests on particular topics. I was surprised, too, the first time I saw them reporting something that I knew was completely wrong. And then I realized this was years ago. Wow, Snopes is not the ultimate arbiter of fact and myth. And in this instance, they were giving 
a false line that was a definite corporate party line on a particular topic. Let's fast forward to Facebook and their what I call fake fact checks. There was the fact check they did of a documentary about the origin of the coronavirus that did not make any definitive claims about where the coronavirus came from, but interviewed a lot of people in China and had some Chinese documents. It was a very smart, well-done documentary that posited where it could have come from and what some of the sourcing was and interviewed scientists in China and so on. And that was debunked supposedly by Facebook, who said it was fake news and shouldn't be spread around. And if you keep following who they're using, they were using in part a conflicted American scientist who worked at the Wuhan lab to debunk this documentary, someone who had a vested interest, but they don't tell you that when they do the fact check. And furthermore, when the CEO of Twitter and Facebook were questioned at a recent congressional hearing, and they were asked, well, who helps you with your fact checks? It was Facebook's Zuckerberg who told Congress he named a few news organizations such as Associated Press and places like that, maybe some journalism nonprofits. And I'm thinking, really? Because these are the same organizations that have been co-opted by the political and corporate interests that I've talked about. And some of the same organizations that have put out some blatantly false information. And in the case of the New York Times, of course, so much false reporting and false news the past four years. In the case of Associated Press, same thing. The notion that they would be fact-checking anybody and that Zuckerberg would say that with a straight face at a hearing before Congress shows either their ignorance or their belief that we are ignorant and don't understand what's going on. And I'd make another point because a lot of people note that big tech censorship, they believe, is rooted in ideology, that of course there are a lot of Silicon Valley people who are like-minded in terms of progressive and liberal values. And of course, these big tech companies not only were among the very biggest donors to Hillary Clinton in 2016, also to Bernie Sanders, by the way, but again, among the biggest donors to Joe Biden in 2020. But I have to tell you, this was not big tech's idea to get into the censorship and curating game. Because before 2016, before the political and corporate interests thought this up, they showed no interest in doing that. This is a new concept. We're kind of used to it now, so it's hard to remember or believe it's only been around about four years, the idea of curating or having social media fact check. But they were convinced to do this by these interests. And I think I make a pretty compelling case for why that was, that by 2016, these political and corporate interests had gotten pretty good at controlling the terms of what's reported on the news, controlling the news narratives, the language we use, the subjects we address, the things that we don't talk about. But they saw, particularly with the rise in popularity of Donald Trump in the 2016 timeframe, that they were still at a disadvantage because people, even though the news was largely controlled, could still go online and find any information they want and find the viewpoints that are being censored on the news and find the scientific studies that certain powerful corporate interests have successfully eliminated from the news, those could be found online. 
And these political and corporate interests didn't like that. So they set about, in my view, convincing and lobbying social media and often doing this through political figures, but sometimes doing it directly, getting big tech to create this notion that they needed to step in between us and our information. And they've spent a good part of the last four years working on that. And where we are today, I believe, is the result of that. They created the impression that we needed curators. They had to convince us starting in 2016 that this is something, this is a service that was for our own good. Because prior to 2016, if you look, there was no movement, no big outcry for social media of all people or Google to fact check information or fact check political ads or censor accounts entirely. In fact, the promise of the internet and social media and Google originally was the opposite. And I've likened it to almost a drug dealer because when all of these things started, these companies that became so big, kind of like monopolies, when they started, the promise was this free flow of information and ideas and viewpoints. It was for entertainment and research. And you could find almost anything except that which is illegal. You can find that too, but when that's caught, that's removed, rightly so. But everything else was fair game. And once they got us hooked with this idea, they changed the rules. But by then, we were sort of like the addicts. We had become accustomed to communicating this way doing our research this way, using Google, going on social media. And by then we were reliant on them and they changed all the rules. They had us. That's kind of where we are today. Where do we go from here when it comes to this censorship? I think it's going to get worse. It's getting worse by the day for the moment. But there are very smart people working on solutions to this problem because tens of millions of Americans, as I like to point out, aren't buying it. Whether you supported Donald Trump or not, one thing his candidacy shows and his success shows, and even this last election shows, because he got something like 11 million more votes than he did four years earlier, is that tens of millions of Americans aren't buying the narrative. Tens of millions of Americans voted for the guy that they were told not to vote for, that there was nobody worse than Donald Trump. But these people didn't listen, and that tells me there's a huge chunk of American society that sees the very thing that I'm talking about today that doesn't buy into what big tech and censors and powerful corporate and political interests are trying to do. In fact, in the long run, this may work into sort of a backfire situation. The more they tell people they can't see something, it makes people want to see it, makes them wonder what's being hidden. It makes them seek something else. In fact, when I spoke to a young person about this recently, I was a little bit heartened because I was talking about how much information is being shaped and manipulated and censored by powerful interests. And this young person said to me, well, I know for people in my generation, when we're told we can't see something, it makes us want to see it more. And isn't that kind of human nature and maybe in the end what saves us? But there are smart people on at least three fronts working on solutions. And I know this because I talk to them. I get contacted by people probably every couple of weeks who want to brainstorm about what can be done. One group of them, one group of these people are journalists, people like me who want to be able to report in a free and unfettered fashion 
bringing all different kinds of viewpoints, information, and factual studies, and information that others are trying to controversialize and improperly censor because they don't want you to hear it because it goes against the interests they're advancing or the interests that they're ultimately paid by. But there are a lot of journalists who want to be able to report in more the old-fashioned way and trying to figure out ways to do it. Number two, there are investors who are not looking to make money as their main goal, but they're asking where can they put their money that helps achieve a freer information landscape? Again, what the journalists are talking about. Some place where if you report off-narrative information, information that these powerful people don't like, that you can't be erased, even if they controversialize you and try to make you out to be crazy and all of the smear campaigns so that people don't listen to you, where can you still have a safe platform and you're not deplatformed? You still have a way to speak and be heard and talk. And then the third group of people working on this problem are the technical people that believe much the same things as we're talking about. And they're looking for the technical expertise of how to do it. So there's money, there's journalists, and the technical folks who include Larry Sanger, the former co-founder of Wikipedia, who left Wikipedia as he saw it become sort of the monster that it is today, where it's controlled by political and corporate interests and agenda editors, as you probably know, on some topics and biographies, completely skewed, false information, slanted information, very agenda-driven. Well, Larry Sanger is working on ideas with other people of how we can have information that's freer, more unfettered, less controlled by these political and corporate interests, more honest. And I think we'll get to that. I really am hopeful that over the course of the next four years, there will be solutions and tens of millions of people turning to those solutions. In the meantime, I think there's going to be some pain. I think things might get worse before they get better in terms of information. And that's why it helps for you to, as I say, not live in the box to understand when you're using social media and the internet, yes, use it for research, use it for entertainment, use it for all of those purposes, but understand it's a heavily managed environment. It's not real. And what you see when you turn off the computer, if you travel around the country, you travel around the world, talk to your friends and family, that's what's real. Don't live in that box and become convinced that for example, if you're on social media and you feel differently than the prevailing views that are prevented, that you're an outlier, don't be convinced of that. You're probably not. Don't be bullied into thinking you're the only one who feels a certain way. As you use your common sense and see things on the news or online that don't make sense or are contradictory, you know don't feel right, trust your cognitive dissonance. Trust yourself on that. Don't fall for it. Don't embrace and don't accept the notion that these third parties think that they can come between us and our information. Challenge it. Talk about it. And know that you're far from alone. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Check out justthenews.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the Cheryl Ackeson podcast anywhere Share it with your friends. Leave a great review. Check out my other podcast, Full Measure After Hours, 
and all of the Just the News podcasts wherever you like to listen. And if these topics we talk about are important to you, there's still time before the holidays to get your copy of Slanted, my new book, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism. That's Slanted, Order Anywhere. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself. 